Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. After a brief hiatus as we celebrated the release of the Final Fantasy VII Remake, today we are back on track with our discussion of morality and literacy, and we're going to be talking a little bit about print today. Um, as a quick preface and intro to this episode, um, I want you to think for a second about the last time you used a Google Drive document, and the idea and the observation that the Google Drive document, the electronic page on the screen, is replica a facsimile a replication of a of a physical piece of paper um did you ever think about that and have you, have you ever thought about that idea that when we moved from physical print documents into digital documents we also took with us the paradigm of the page uh, and the way that that functions works and looks uh, and we've replicated that on the screen just something interesting to think about as we dive back into orality and literacy thank you so much for tuning in today let's get into it So we are about halfway into orality and literacy. We're on about page 115, and we're in chapter 5, Print Space and Closure. And Walter Ong writes to us here, saying, For thousands of years, human beings have been printing designs from variously carved surfaces, and since the 7th or 8th century, Chinese, Koreans, and Japanese have been printing verbal texts, at first from wood blocks, engraved in relief. But the crucial development in the globe his global history of printing was the invention of alphabetic letterpress print in 15th century Europe. Alphabetic writing had broken the word up into spatial equivalents of phonetic units uh, in principle, though the letters were never quite worked out as totally phonemic indicators. But the letters used in writing do not exist before the text in which they occur. With alphabetic letterpress print, it is otherwise. Words are made out of units or types which pre-exist as units before the words which they will constitute. Print suggests that words are things far more than writing ever did. This is a very interesting idea and concept for us to think about, this idea that when print came about, right? So, so it's important here to distinguish the idea of print and writing. Um, writing is, is a shift from a primarily oral culture, a culture that did not have a system by which to replicate sounds uh, through a visual spectrum, um, so we move from we shift from orality to to writing, and uh, now all of a sudden we've got a system by which we can write things down. We can uh, move our ideas and thoughts from an oral space to a physical space, um, and then now all of a sudden we've got a new piece of technology that allows us to replicate and print those 
things that we've been writing and disseminate those things to other people. Um, and this is a really key idea, uh, the way that, that print, uh, the things that print allowed for. Ong continues by saying, like the alphabet, alphabetic letterpress print was a nonce invention. The Chinese had had movable type, but no alphabet, only characters, basically pictographic. Before the mid-1400s, the Koreans and the Uyghur Turks had both the alphabet and movable type, but the movable types bore not separate letters, but whole words. Alphabet letterpress printing, in which each letter was cast on a separate piece of metal or type, marked a psychological breakthrough of the first order. It embedded the word itself deeply in the manufacturing process and made it into a kind of commodity. The first assembly line, a technique of manufacture which in a series of set steps produces identical complex objects made up of replaceable parts, was not one which produced stoves or shoes or weaponry, but one which produced the printed book. In the late 1700s, the Industrial Revolution applied to other manufacturing the replaceable part techniques which printers had worked for 300 years. Despite the assumptions of many semiotic structuralists, it was print, not writing, that effectively re, uh, refined the word, re, reified the word, and with it, noetic activity, or the idea, the, the activity of thought. Um, so, you know, clearly here, this idea that uh, the, the word becoming reified, becoming um, sort of like honored in this way, was a big deal. Ung continues here and uh, says, Hearing rather than sight had dominated the older noetic world in significant ways even long after writing was deeply interiorized. Manuscript culture in the West remained always marginally oral. Ambrose of Milan caught the earlier mood in his commentary on Luke uh, when he said, Sight is often deceived, hearing serves as guarantee. In the West, through the Renaissance, the oration was the most uh, taught of all verbal productions and remained implicitly the basic paradigm for all discourse written as well as oral. This section continues with some really interesting discussions about um, the evolution of the of the of the book of the word of the printed word and how that changed everything and how it changed cultures and how it changed society and how it changed the noetic thinking world and the way that we were able to sit down and process and disseminate and discuss and one really interesting uh, part here that um, I, I wanted to share was this this I, this part about typographic space and this brings me back to the idea at the beginning of the episode this this image of the of the word document on a digital screen so think about that kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we hear this part and Ong says before visual surface had become charged with imposed meaning and because print controlled not only what words were put down to form a text but also the exact situation of the words on the page and their spatial relationship to one another the space itself on a printed sheet white space as it is called took on high significance that leads directly into the modern and postmodern world. Manuscript lists and charts discussed by Goody can situate words in specific spatial relationships to one another, but if the spatial relationships are extremely complicated, the complications will not survive uh, the vagaries of successive copiers. Print can reproduce with complete accuracy and in any quantity indefinitely complex lists and charts. Early in the age of print, extremely complex charts appear in the teaching of academic subjects. 
Typographic space works not only on the scientific and philosophic imagination, but also on the literary imagination, which shows some of the complicated ways in which typographic space is present to the psyche. George Herbert exploits typographic space to provide meaning in his Easter Wings and the Altar, where the lines of varying lengths give the poems a visualized shape suggesting wings and an altar respectively. In manuscripts, this kind of visual structure would be only marginally visible. In Tristram Shandy, Lawrence Stern uses typographic space with calculated whimsy, including in his book Blank Pages, to indicate his unwillingness to treat a subject and to invite the reader to fill in. Space here is the equivalent of silence. Much later and with greater sophistication, Stephanie Mallarmé designs his poem, Un coup de da, to be set in varying fonts and sizes of type with the lines scattered calculatingly across the pages in a kind of typographical freefall, suggesting the chance that rules a, th that rules a throw of dice. Um, Mallarmé's declared objective is to avoid narrative and space out the reading of the poem so that the page with its typographic spaces, not the line, is the unit of verse. E. E. Cummings' untitled poem number 276 from 1968 about the grasshopper disintegrates the words of its text and scatters them unevenly about the page until at last letters come together in the final word grasshopper, all this to suggest the erratic and optically dizzying flight of a grasshopper until he finally reassembles himself straightforwardly on the blade of grass before us. White space is so integral to Cummings' poem that it is utterly impossible to read the poem aloud. The sounds cued in by the letters have to be present in the imagination, but their presence is not simply auditory. It interacts with the visually and kinesthetically perceived space around them. Concrete poetry climaxes in a certain way the interaction of sounded words and typographic space. It presents exquisitely complicated or exquisitely uncomplicated visual displays of letters and words, some of which can be viewed but not read aloud at all but none of which can be appropriated without some awareness of verbal sound. Even when concrete poetry cannot be read at all, it is still not merely a picture. Concrete poetry is a minor genre, often merely gimmicky, a fact which makes it all the more necessary to explain the drive to produce it. Hartman has suggested a connection between concrete poetry and Jacques Derrida's ongoing logom logomachy with the text. The connection is certainly real and deserves more attention. Concrete poetry plays with the dialectic of the word locked into a space as opposed to the sounded oral word which can never be locked into a space. That is, it plays with the absolute limitations of textuality which paradoxically reveal the built-in limitations of the spoken word too. This is Derrida's terrain, though he moves over it at his own calculated gait. Concrete poetry is not the product of writing, but of topography, as has been seen. Deconstruction is tied to topography rather than, as its advocates seem often to assume, merely to writing. So a lot going on in that passage there, but I thought that was, that was really interesting because, again, kind of connecting these ideas into a digital age, and, and we've, we've come to a place now where it's so easy to play around with the visual print text topography of a, of a page of a space, you can literally do anything you want with words and letters. Um, there's thousands and thousands of apps for your smartphone, for your PC, for whatever you're using to make words and images and everything else come together and work however you want them to work together. Um, it, it makes me think of memes and GIFs and the way that text and images have to function sort of in this symbiotic relationship in, in that medium to make it work. Um, it makes me think a lot about visual design and how easy it is to resize, recolor, change font, cut and paste. Um, 
you know, imagine the, these these tools are the evolution in a lot of ways of this discussion of topography and and of print um, and moving that print experience into a more digital space. Um, the fact that we don't we no longer kind of have to rely on print as the end all be all uh, sort of end game of a text. Um, before the idea, no matter how much digital work was done on a text, the idea was that it would ultimately end up in print. Um, you know, you would always sort of, I know when I went through school, at least in the back of my mind, you were always kind of thinking about a print audience. And this is something that I've really tried to get away from with my own writing students is, you know, we don't have to primarily think of our audiences as someone reading uh, from a sheet of paper being held in their hand. And what considerations and affordances are we able to allow ourselves as writers uh, thinking about audiences that are experiencing our texts digitally on phones, on screens, um, orally through a podcast perhaps, visually through an infographic, um, a poster, you know, visual design. All of these things are forms of print and writing. And the accessibility to be able to create these kinds of texts, play around with the physical space, um, is really fascinating to me. I mean, could you imagine what E.E. E. Cummings could have done uh, if he had an app like Canva or if he had Photoshop or, you know, a computer at his disposal? I mean, imagine what kind of crazy stuff would have been created by some of these poets. Um, it makes me also think, you know, what, what is being done now? Um, what are poets doing now? I should look into that. You know, what, where is poetry in 2020? Are poets kind of clinging to a lot of the, the sort of historical tropes that they have used in the past, or is poetry kind of taking, taking form in new places, um, in new spaces with new tools and new technology. So it's just, I think it's just a really interesting discussion that Ong brings up here. Um, he continues in this next section, print and closure, intertextuality, and he says, uh, print encourages a sense of closure, a sense that what is found in a text has been finalized, has reached a state of completion. This sense affects literary creations, and it affects analytic, philosophical, or scientific work. Before print, writing itself encouraged some sense of noetic closure. By isolating thought on a written surface, detached from any interlocutor, making utterance in this sense autonomous and indifferent to attack, writing presents utterance and thought as uninvolved with all else, somehow self-contained and complete. Print in the same way situates utterance and thought on a surface, disengaged from everything else. But it also goes farther in suggesting self-containment. Print encloses uh, thought in thousands of copies of a work of exactly the same visual and physical consistency. A verbal correspondence of copies of the same uh, printing can be checked with no resort to sound at all, but simply by sight. A Heinemann collator superimposed corresponding pages of two copies of a text and signal variations to the viewer with a blinking light. A correlative of the sense of closure fostered by print was the fixed point of view, which Marshall McLuhan pointed out, came into being with print. With the fixed point of view, a fixed tone could now be preserved through the whole of a lengthy prose composition. The fixed point of view and fixed tone showed in one way a greater distance between the writer and the reader, in another way a greater tacit understanding. The writer could go his or her own way confidently, greater distance and lack of concern. There was no need to make everything a kind of... Um, Menopean satire, a mixture of various points of view and tone for various sensibilities, the writer could be confident that the reader would adjust. At this point, the reading public came into existence, a sizable clientele of readers unknown personally to the author, but able to deal with certain more or less established points of view. Um, and then there is a whole section here about post-topography called electronics. Um, 
Despite what is sometimes said, electronic devices are not eliminating printed books, but are actually producing more of them. Electronically taped interviews produce talked books and articles by the thousands, which would never have been never seen print before taping was possible. The new medium here reinforces the old, but of course transforms it because it fosters a new self-consciously informal style, since typographic folk believe that oral exchange should normally be informal. Moreover, as earlier noted, composition on computer terminals is replaced placing older forms of typographic composition so that soon virtually all printing will be done in one way or another with the aid of electronic equipment. And of course, information of all sorts electronically gathered and or processed makes its way into print to swell the typographic output. Finally, the sequential processing and spatializing of the word initiated by writing and raised to a new order of intensity by print is further intensified by the computer, which maximizes commitment of the word to space and to electronic local motion and optimizes analytic sequentiality by making it virtually instantaneous. At the same time, with telephone, radio, television, and various kinds of sound tape, electronic technology has brought us into the age of secondary orality. This new orality has striking resemblances to old, to the old and its participatory mystique, its fostering of communal sense, its concentration on the present moment, and even in its use of formulas. But it is essentially a more deliberate and self-conscious orality based permanently on the use of writing and print, which are essential for the manufacture and operation of the equipment and for its use as well. Secondary orality is both remarkably like and remarkably unlike primary orality. Like primary orality, secondary orality has generated a strong group sense, for listening to spoken words forms hearers into a group. A true audience, just as reading written or printed texts turns individuals in on themselves. But secondary orality generates a sense for groups immeasurably larger than those of primary oral culture. McLuhan's Global Village. Moreover, before writing, oral folk were group-minded because no feasible alternative had presented itself. In our age of secondary orality, we are group-minded self-consciously and programmatically. The individual feels that he or she as an individual must be socially sensitive. Unlike members of a primary oral culture, we are turned outward because they have had little occasion to turn inward. We are turned outward because we have turned inward. In, in a like vein, where primary orality promotes spontaneity because the analytic reflectiveness implemented by writing is unavailable, secondary orality promotes spontaneity because through analytic reflection we have decided that spontaneity is a good thing. We plan our happenings carefully to be sure that they are thoroughly spontaneous. <laughs> the contrast between oratory in the past and in today's world well highlights the contrast between primary and secondary orality. Radio and television have brought major political figures in public as public speakers to a larger public than was ever possible before modern electronic developments. Thus, in a sense, orality has come into its own more than ever before, but it is not the old orality. The old-style oratory coming from primary orality is gone forever. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, the combatants, for that is what they clearly and truly were, faced one another often in the scorching Illinois summer sun outdoors before wildly responsive audiences as many as 12 or 15,000 persons, speaking for an hour and a half each. The first speaker had one hour, the second an hour and a half, and the first another half hour of rebuttal. All this with no amplifying equipment. Primary orality 
personality made itself felt in the additive, redundant, carefully balanced, highly agnostic style and the intense interplay between speaker and audience. The debaters were hoarse and physically exhausted at the end of each bout. Presidential debates on television today are completely out of this older oral world. The audience is absent, invisible, inaudible. The candidates are ensconced in tight little booths, make short presentations, and engage in crisp little conversations with each other in which any agnostic edge is deliberately kept dull. Electronic media do not tolerate a show of open antagonism. Despite their cultivated air of spontaneity, these media are totally dominated by a sense of closure, which is, he closure, which is the heritage of print. A show of hostility might break open the closure, the tight control. Candidates accommodate themselves to the psychology of the media. Genteel, literate domesticity is rampant. Only quite elderly persons today can remember what oratory was like when it was still in living contact with its primary oral roots. Others perhaps hear more oratory, or at least more talk, from major public figures than people commonly heard in a century ago, but what they hear will give them very little idea of the old oratory reaching back from pre-electronic times through two millennia and far beyond, or of the oral lifestyle and oral thought structures out of which such oratory grew. So this is a fascinating uh, kind of end point to this to this chapter. The idea that, you know, everything is controlled now, everything is homogenized, everything is rated by the ESRB, and everything has this sort of container that it has to fit into. Otherwise, it's not going to work in whatever this idea of the mainstream America media is. I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why we are in the current situation politically that we are in. Uh, perhaps people are responding to a breaking of that container. Um, I think this was part of the message of, uh, of, some, of, of a political candidate in 2016 and the current president. And I think that's what people responded to. I think in some way that candidate was tapping into um, this old sense of... of vulgarity in a way of of uh, I don't know if I want to label that as like realness but perhaps this old sense of like uh, authenticity perhaps in a kind of in a in a way that I wish it could have been a more positive authenticity but you know so often political candidates to me feel just like robotic and unreal and not humans um, and and I think their humanity is often um, coached out of them and and the then their rhetoric is so practiced and rehearsed and on point all the time that they don't feel like real people. Um, and I think that's kind of maybe part of what happened in 2016. Um, there was a candidate that felt like a real person, not the kind of real person that I would want to be associated with, um, but nonetheless, a more authentic person, um, for better or worse. Uh, and, and this idea that modern orality is so far removed from, from traditional orality is, is very interesting as well. You know, just the idea of the podcast, right? Um, it's, a prime, it's, a, it's an oral medium. Of course, you're listening to this and I'm talking into a microphone. Um, but it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly guarded and guided and, and contained a little bit. I'm trying to be as authentic as possible, but, you know, there is some performative aspects to it. Um, and maybe that's part of orality. Of course, that is part of orality and what orality is. But I think that's an interesting idea, the idea that 
we're you know we don't we're so far like modern morality is secondary morality is so different from primary morality and 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 even though we have mediums we have we have ways to deal with that now it's it's just so far removed i don't know what do you think about that i'm kind of ranting a little bit now but um or what are your thoughts on the sort of idea of secondary orality on your thoughts of the evolution of print and why print is so important and what print has done um and where are we going from here clearly ong uh wasn't quite working with with ideas about technology as it exists today in his discussion here um what are your thoughts on where we're at with with our technology and where does it go from here what's the next phase of electronic technology on our idea of writing and print and orality you know where do we go from here and what's that look like um Share your thoughts, leave me a message. Thanks so much for listening today, and I will catch you next time on the pickup line.